excuse me, ready to take in God's Word. Utilization of 1 John 1, 9, the privacy of our priesthood, to make sure that we are in fellowship, and then we will begin. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that we have this privilege to study Your Word, that it is Your Word that is the means by which we grow as believers, along with the filling of the Holy Spirit. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Father, as we study Your Word tonight, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would help us to understand not only what we study, but how it applies to our lives, and that we might use this, and it might be advantageous in our own lives, in our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to James chapter 2, verse 8. James chapter 2, verse 8. I had thought last week when we finished that we would be wrapping up our study of the royal law, but I've decided to come back and do one last installment, especially as it relates to what the New Testament teaches regarding the Christian institution of marriage. But first, we need to recapitulate some basic concepts related to the royal law, which is the doctrine of unconditional love or impersonal love. When Jesus Christ summarized the Mosaic law, he summarized it under two categories. Number one, you shall love the Lord Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it in Matthew 22:39, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a direct quote from Leviticus 19.18 and summarizes the part of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, that does not relate to loving God. This was originally cited in this summary fashion in Leviticus 19.18, but it is not called the royal law there. It does not get that name until James denominates it as such in James 2.8. This is one of the most quoted passages from the Old Testament. We find it in Matthew 19.19, Matthew 22.39, Mark 12.31, Luke 10.27, Romans 13.9, Galatians 5.14, and in James 2.8. Why does James rename this the royal law? In the Old Testament, it was an establishment principle. It's part of the Decalogue. It's part of the Mosaic Law. And remember, the Mosaic Law was designed... For every person in Israel, believer or unbeliever. So it was not related to the spiritual life. It was part of the uh, legislative code for the entire nation. Part of establishment principle. However, as in many other areas related to the Mosaic law, Israel failed to fulfill this. It's brought over into the church age and is renamed the royal law and is identified as a unique production of God the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and following, when we get down into the fruit of the Spirit, we will say that the first, see that the first one listed is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And that comes under this category. So we, it is renamed the royal love, first of all, because it was exemplified in the first advent, in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ during His life and especially in the crucifixion when he went to the cross. There he demonstrated for all time and eternity the essence of unconditional and impersonal love. It is called the royal law because it was so exemplified by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Secondly, 
It is called the royal law because it is the unique characteristic of the church age believer who is a member of the royal family of God. We see this in John 13, 34, and 35 when Jesus, talking to his disciples, said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. There's the model. We are to love one another in the same way that Jesus Christ has expressed his love for us. This is what makes this such a difficult mandate. This is why it is so difficult for people to understand it. I think that at some point we've all run into the churches where they'll have you stand up and look at the person next to you and and hug them or tell them how much you love them. And while there is in some sense nothing wrong with that, my problem with it is that it, it reduces this whole concept to something that is fairly superficial and silly. Because what we have here is something that is incredibly profound and difficult and impossible to perform in the energy of the flesh. It is impossible for us to perform this out of our own basic ability, no matter how good we are, no matter how moral we are, no matter how nice you are and how sweet you are, that there's going to be many times when you face other people and other believers that are not very nice. Now, I know that may shock some of you, but there are some believers out there that aren't worth our time, we think, in the sin nature. They... Their personality grates on our personality. They are living in rank carnality and rebelliousness, and they hold to many beliefs and ideas that are, shall we say, a stench in the nostrils of God. And we don't want to have anything to do with them. And yet, the Scripture says that we are to love one another, that is, other believers, even as Christ loved us. That's a hard act to follow and can only be followed when we are utilizing the filling of the Holy Spirit and we understand a lot of doctrine because this is not something that the immature baby believer can produce, at least not in a consistent manner. So Jesus has said that this is going to be the unique characteristic of a member of the royal family of God. In verse 35 he says, By this... All men will know that you are my disciples. This is our ultimate testimony. It's not what we say, but how we relate, especially to those who are unlovely and who in our natural response we would be reacting to emotionally rather than initiating uh, in terms of impersonal and unconditional love. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the royal law is the unique characteristic of the church-age believer who is advancing towards spiritual maturity. Point number three, it is vital to advance to this level. This is all under point one. I had four points, four reasons why it's the royal law. First, it's exemplified by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Second, it's the unique characteristic of the royal family of God. Third, it's vital to advance to this level in preparation for our future role as those who will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. Part of the characteristics of those who will have that inheritance, joint heirs with Christ, who will rule and reign with Him, is that we have learned true and genuine humility. We understand the principle of being a servant 
and, and serving in the context that divine viewpoint expresses it, not as men do lead, which is in terms of domination but the, and tyranny, but that we would lead on the basis of being a servant. So this character quality has to be developed in us under the filling of God the Holy Spirit in preparation for our future role in the kingdom of God. Fourth, we have trouble, the fourth observation on this is that it's very difficult for us to apply this because we want to react emotionally to many people that we run into. Sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. But this tells us that this kind of love is not emotional. It's not this silly, superficial, simpering, sweet feeling that people have for one another. It's not emotion at all because there are just too many people we're commanded to love who, number one, we can't know at all, and yet we still have to love them. And number two, if we do get to know them, we don't want to love them at all because they're not very lovable, but we have to operate on the basis of volition and application of doctrine and do what Scripture says to do and respond on the basis of doctrine which calls into play mentality and our volition and not reacting on the basis of emotion. So all of that's under point number one, summarizing the royal law and why it's called the royal law. Point number two, we said that to understand this and its application, we must rely upon a, a dispensational distinctive. And that is that mandates in the Old Testament are all fulfilled by Jesus Christ at the first advent and at the cross. And the Mosaic law does not continue in its operational aspect into the church age. However, any mandates that are reiterated in the church age continue to be part of the spiritual life. And so, we come to this, we see that it is reiterated in the Sermon on the Mount in relation to the Millennial Kingdom, and it is stated by Jesus Christ during the first advent. It's stated again in James chapter 2 and Galatians chapter 5, 14, as part of the spiritual life of the church age. So this is not something that you can just throw off into some other dispensation and say it has no relevance for today. It is clear that this principle is to characterize uh, believers and uniquely believers in the church age. This takes us back then to point number three, and that is the context of Leviticus 19.18. The context shows us that this is an establishment principle for believer and unbeliever alike. And in the context of Leviticus, it is explained primarily in a passive sense as the absence of mental attitude sins. Leviticus 19.18 reads, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there it is, treating your neighbor as yourself, not uh, on the basis of mental attitude sins, of, of vindictiveness, anger, bitterness, jealousy, uh, malice, or any other uh, mental attitude sin. When we examined that passage, we saw that, that love was defined in context as uh, having generosity, leaving something for the undeserving poor out in the fields. Remember, it was an agricultural society. So rather than taking everything out of the fields for yourself, leave something out there so when the poor come by, they have something to, to grab to eat. The same thing could be applied in business practices today, and that is to not to try to get everything you can out of a deal, but always leave something on the table for somebody else to get. Uh, second point, uh, love means 
in that context, respecting privacy of other people, their personal property, and truth. That was described in verse 11. It was, there was a prohibition to perjury. The perjury or lying was a violation of this principle. And that's in verse 12. Uh, impersonal love is defined there, rejects the oppression of others as well as unjust wages from employers. Impersonal love implied respect for all men, even those who were handicapped or disfigured or had physical or mental deformities. It also involved an absence of slander, gossip, sins of the tongue, an absence of murder, and an absence of mental attitude sins. So primarily it is described as a passive thing, although there are some few active senses to it in terms of uh, respecting other people. But in Luke chapter 6, the Lord begins to add some positive aspects to it or some active senses to it. This is point number four. Luke 6.31, it is defined as, Jesus says, and just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. So he ratchets our understanding of impersonal love up a couple of notches. It's not just an absence of mental attitude sins and not simply respecting other people, but it is treating them in the same way we would want them to treat us. So if we fail and we want people to treat us with understanding and compassion in the midst of our failure, then we should treat other people in that same way. It ratchets it up to another level. And then we have the comparison from a passage in John chapter 13 that this is to be a reflection of Christ's own love for us. And we see this especially exemplified in salvation, John 3.16, For God loved the world so much that He gave. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we broke that apart and said, Okay, what are the characteristics of God's love as demonstrated in the cross? And we said it was initiating. It began in eternity past. God initiated a solution from eternity past to solve the problem. It involved aggression. God was aggressive in pursuing the object of His love. It exemplified humility in the work of Christ that He came not to uh, be served, but to serve and to give His life as a sacrifice for many. There was an intensity to it. He was not going to be deterred from His task of demonstrating His love for mankind on the cross through His spiritual sacrifice. Fifth, it demonstrated steadfast loyalty to God the Father in fulfilling His plan. He was not going to be distracted or sidetracked from God's plan for His life, which was to go to the cross. It involved consecration. His life was completely set apart to fulfilling God's plan and purposes for His life. It involved dedication to the goal of loving mankind and demonstrating that love through the cross as well as devotion. So these are the characteristics it is initiating, aggressive, humble, intense, steadfast, steadfastly loyal. It is consecrate, consecrated, dedicated, and devoted. Now, this should characterize all impersonal love toward all mankind, whether we know them or whether we don't know them. But this is particularly true when it involves those who are close to us in our families, our spouses, our children, our parents. That if this is true about those we don't know, it is even more true and harder to apply, I might add, 
to those we know and we live with on a day-to-day basis. Now, let's do some exegetical work on James chapter 2, verse 8, before we go into more application. The passage says in the New American Standard, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, and there is an assumption here that they are, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if, notice that verse 8 begins with a conditional clause. A condition is always expressed by an if clause. In English, if usually implies pure hypothetical possibility. Maybe it will be, maybe it won't, we're not sure. The Greek has four different ways of expressing a hypothesis. It can be a first-class condition, which includes the idea if and it is so. Sometimes it is used in a debater, debater style if and we're assuming this to be true. Second class condition is if and we assume the condition to not be true. Third class condition is if and maybe it is, maybe it isn't. That's a true hypothetical. And then the fourth class condition is if and I wish it were so, but it's not. Those are the four categories of conditional clauses in the Greek. And this is a first class condition if, and it is assumed true for the sake of argument. But we have an interesting construction here between verse 8 and verse 9. When you have two clauses, the first begins with your particle A, which is roughly EI, roughly equivalent to our if, and then you have your, your apotesis, your protesis, and then the apotesis, and then the next sentence begins with an, another A, then this should be translated, especially if in the first one there is another particle, M-E-N. It should be translated if on the one hand, let me get all this in here, if on the one hand, but on the other hand. So you have a contrast in the midst of this condition. And this is how these two verses should read. I don't know why the translators didn't do it this way. If, on the one hand, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if, on the other hand, you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. There is a contrast going on. Either one or the other. Either you are fulfilling the royal law, or you are not fulfilling the royal law. Now, let's look at the next verse. We have to break this apart, because when we finish and we retranslate it, we'll see a little different emphasis here. If, on the one hand, you are fulfilling the law. Now, this is the main verb that's translated, are fulfilling, and it's the present active indicative, second person plural, from the verb teleo, T-E-L-E-O. And this is a word that is somewhat familiar to us, and it means to bring to completion, to cause something to happen for some end result. It always seems to be focusing on an end product. When you talk about one of the arguments for the nature of God is called the teleological argument. Some of you have studied that. And that's from this word teleos. It has to do with purpose, with goal, with direction. That's why it is sometimes 
it indicates maturity, bringing us to maturity, to completion. Sometimes it has the idea of perfection. It means to cause something to happen to bring about an end result, to make it happen, to fulfill, to bring something to fruition, to accomplish, to bring fulfillment. It also means to obey as a means of fulfilling the purpose of a rule or standard. And it is used in this way in Romans 2.27, meaning to obey the law. And this is the same sense it has here in verse 8. If, however, you are obeying the royal law. Now, isn't obedience the subject of this entire section of James? He's talking about hearing the Word and doing it. Doing is obedience. Listening to what God has to say and then applying it. Well, here we have, if if on the one hand you are obeying the royal law. Now, we have already discussed the basic reasons why this is called the royal law. But we need to realize that when James here talks about the law, he uses the word namas, N-O-M, OS, which is the standard word for law, James is not envisioning the Mosaic law. This is not what James is talking about. This is not a passage you can go to to show that James is saying that the Mosaic law is still in effect for today. James has redefined the law already. We saw that back in verse 25 of chapter 1 as the law of liberty. This is God's standard for the spiritual life in the church age. And the completed canon of Scripture, it's no longer a law of slavery, which is what the Mosaic law is termed, and we have seen that in our study of Galatians 3 and 4 on Sunday morning. But under the completed canon of Scripture in the New Testament, it is a law of liberty because we are free from the dominion of sin and we are free from the uh, from bondage to the Mosaic law. So it is the royal law, it is a royal mandate, it is called namas because namas refers to any absolute standard. And this is an absolute standard that has been repeated by the Lord Jesus Christ on several occasions and is applied to the church age believer. It is a royal law because it is to characterize the member of the royal family of God as we have already studied this evening. If, on the one hand, you are obeying the royal law according to the Scripture, that is, inconsistent with the mandate given in the Word of God, and then the the phrase is quoted from the Old Testament, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I want to come back and look at that in a minute, but let's look at the uh, protasis here. If you are doing it, that's the apotasis, the first clause. The the, uh, apotasis is the second clause. If you are obeying this, You are doing well. Now, this is a key phrase that will break this open. He says, you are doing well, and the phrase in the Greek text is kalos poiete. Looks like this. This is the adverb, which means to accomplish a goal, to do well, to accomplish the task to do well in accomplishing the task. It's a word of high praise. Poiete is from the verb poieo. Now, where have we seen this verb in our study? We have seen this back in verse 22. But become doers, poieo, appliers of 
the Word. Now, how do you become an applier of the Word? Well, one instance of application is using this problem-solving device of impersonal love for all mankind. So when somebody does something to you, they mistreat you, they abuse you, they reject you, as in the case of the rich that, is, that we've seen in this passage already, the rich who are oppressing these Jewish believers and dragging them into court and blaspheming Christ, all of these things, they are under re- the test of rejection. And the Bible says the solution, if you want to pass the test, if you want to avoid stress in your soul and sin nature control of the soul, then you need to apply the royal law. If, however, you are obeying the royal law, you are applying well. Now, this takes us back to understand the dynamics of how we learn Scripture. First of all, pastor-teacher, the man who has a spiritual gift of teaching the Word, extrapolating doctrine from Scripture, and has a communication gift, but it's not simply a communication gift. A lot of people have the gift of gab. It is the ability to study the Scriptures, to analyze the Scriptures, to extrapolate doctrine from them, and then to communicate that to believers so that they can be fed spiritually. It's done under the filling of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, makes it understandable as pneumaticos doctrine. You exercise your volition once you understand it, and it becomes gnosis. You have to think about it for you to, before you can understand it. Once you understand it, you have the option of believing it or not believing it. Once you believe it, God the Holy Spirit transfers it into the innermost part of the thinking of your soul, the cardia, where it becomes epinosis doctrine. Now, that is usable doctrine. That doesn't mean that it's going to be automatic for you to use it. That as soon as you go out and somebody does something to you, somebody uh, rejects you or somebody is hostile to you, that you're just going to automatically apply impersonal love. That's not the way it is. Now you understand the concept. It is in your soul. You know that you can use it. It's available for you to use it under the filling of the Holy Spirit. But you have to exercise your volition in the midst of that test and apply it and actually demonstrate unconditional love towards that person, both passively in the sense of an absence of of, uh, uh, mental attitude sins, no anger, no bitterness, no hostility, no vindictiveness, but also positively in the sense that you're willing to give them more than they're asking for or more than they need. You not only treat them courteously and with good manners and kindness, but you go a step further if necessary. Just as in the same way that our Lord was rejected on the earth by men, He continued to uh, do everything He could for them to the point of dying on the cross as a substitute for their sins. That's how application takes place. Now, this doctrine is stored here, so we apply it. We apply it in terms of the problem-solving devices. We apply it in terms of the stress busters. When we sin, we confess our sins. When we come into a test, we we claim promises. We exercise the faith rest drill. When we deal with a situation involving rejection or hostility, then we utilize impersonal love. That is doing Scripture. Doing the Word is not teaching Sunday school. It's not going out and knocking on doors. It's not passing out tracts down at the airport. That's not what James means by doing the Word. Yet that is, what, how, that is the superficial way in which most people teach this passage. It's very clear 
But the use of poieo here as the main verb in verse 8, that if you apply the principle of the royal law, you are doing, you are poieo, you are applying well. That is the point of this whole chapter, is what it means to apply in the midst of testing. Now we have to go back and look at one word I passed over briefly, and that is the word for neighbor. In the Greek, it is the word plasion. P-L-E-S-I-O-N. And this refers to... The basic meaning of plasion is a position that is quite close to another position with the possible implication of being contiguous. It means to be quite near or nearby. Thus, when it is applied to a person, it doesn't mean a neighbor in the sense that we use the term neighbor, that is, somebody who lives next door to you, somebody who lives across the street from you. This means anybody that comes into your sphere of life. It may be somebody you work out with. It may be somebody you work with. It may be a salesperson you deal with. It may be a representative of some company that you deal with. It may be somebody on the other end of the telephone when you're calling in with some aggravation or complaint that that company has not fulfilled its obligations. Whatever it might be, a placeion is anyone who comes into your sphere of contact. It may be someone you uh, socialize with on occasion. If you play sports, it may be someone else on the team. It may be uh, someone that you are uh, just see on occasion, but whenever they are within your sphere of life, they are a placeion. So even if you do not know them, they are a neighbor, and you are to love them in the same way that you would, and treat them in the same way that you would want to be be treated. So the neighbor involves anyone with whom you come in contact during the course of your life. And, of course, the person that you come in contact with more than anyone else is the member of your own family, specifically your spouse. So let's apply this whole concept of impersonal love now to the doctrine of marriage, and we're going to see how the royal law reverses or begins to reverse the devastating consequences uh, or part of the devastating consequences of the curse of sin, how the royal law is the basis for reversing part of the devastating consequences of the curse of sin, especially as it applies to marriage. So point number one, in no other arena are we tested as much and have to deal with mental attitude, sins, rejection, anger, insubordination, and humility as within the realm of the family and the realm of marriage. Now, I don't mean that every one of you has to deal with that, the worst case scenario all the time. But if you look at the history of marriage and what happens in many marriages, that is the case and the sad reality. The reality is proverbial and has come to be known as the battle of the sexes. So how did this come about And why and how does impersonal and unconditional love resolve the problems of marriage? Point number two. 
without impersonal love, you can never get this down, memorize this. Without impersonal love, advancing to this level of spiritual maturity and having the capacity for love, you will never ever experience the kind of stability, success, and happiness in marriage that God originally intended. It won't happen. Without doctrine, you can never get there. Now, this is not to say that the unbeliever or the immature believer or the carnal believer cannot have some measure of happiness in marriage, because they certainly do. What I'm saying is that you will never, ever experience the kind of stability, success, and happiness that God intended without advancing to this level of spiritual maturity because it is only when you get this far along that you have the capacity for love and to appreciate all that you have in marriage. At best, without it, you can experience a modicum of happiness and stability, but it is often tenuous and shaky because it is built on human viewpoint systems of problem-solving and not on divine viewpoint systems of solving problems. Often what you see in family dynamics and marriage dynamics is people just living in denial, ignoring certain problems, hoping that they'll never come to surface, brushing things under the rug, and and living in sort of a uh, a la-la land, divorced from reality, because they have no means of really dealing with issues when they come out that are dealing with unpleasant issues when they surface because they don't have the problem-solving skills of the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit in order to advance beyond it. Remember, at its very root, all human viewpoint systems of problem-solving are going to, one, misdiagnose the problem, and two, because it's a misdiagnosed problem, they're going to misdiagnose the solution. Because human viewpoint is always built on arrogance, whether it is overt arrogance or the pseudo-arrogance, arrogance blinds the minds of men to the truth. So fallen and carnal man is to one degree or another living in a state of denial, divorced from reality, and unwilling and unable to honestly face the ultimate realities of any problem. And thus, they cannot openly and honestly face or or appropriate the true solution. While man can opt for human viewpoint solutions that make him and his marriage functional, and they can experience a degree of happiness, it is only when two believers are operating on the basis of divine viewpoint under the filling of the Holy Spirit, it is only then that they can achieve what God intends for Christian marriage. So, impersonal love is necessary if you're ever going to experience the realities in marriage that God intended. Third, marriage is the second of five divine institutions. We have to put it in the context of how it is originally taught back in Genesis. God designed five divine institutions for the human race. This is establishment truth that God designed for the perpetuation, stability, and protection of the human race. The first is individual responsibility. 
God holds each individual responsible for the decisions they make, and this is exemplified in the original test related to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the, in the Garden of Eden. The authority of individual responsibility is the individual's volition. The second divine institution is marriage. Now, marriage is for every member of the human race, believer and unbeliever alike. I remember one of the questions that seminary students used to ask is, when you're a pastor and a couple comes to you to get married and they're not believers, are you going to marry them? Sure. Marriage is for unbeliever and believer alike. Now, if one is a believer and one is not a believer, that's a different issue. Because the Scripture, I think, prohibits the marriage of an unbeliever with a believer in 2 Corinthians. What fellowship hath light with darkness? Under that principle. But marriage is for every member of the human race. And it's always a mistake. Parents, you ought to drill this into your kids when they're young. My mother started me off when I was a kid that whenever I came home with a new friend, the first question my mother asked was, are they a believer? taught me to start witnessing to kids right away. (laughs) But later, when I was in high school, she had established that pattern with me from the time I was very young, so that if I was going to come home and say, well, I want to take so-and-so to the movies on Saturday night, I knew what the first question was going to be. And I knew I better know the correct answer to that, or I was in in trouble and wouldn't be going anywhere on Saturday night. And I was amazed when I went to my first church and pastored, and it was in a small town not unlike where we are here, and I was amazed at how many children of of the folks who were in the church, and the average age of that congregation was in their late 50s, it was an older congregation, and how many of their children lived in the area but didn't come to church, didn't come to that church because they had married an unbeliever. And consequently, they had, their, they had compromised and sacrificed their own spiritual life because of their relationship with this unbeliever. So that doesn't mean that just because you marry a believer that everything is going to be wonderful, because if that believer goes negative to doctrine, you are really going to have problems. Because now you have not only, not only the problems of... Uh, of having someone who is not walking in the same direction you are, but you've got to deal with their spiritual discipline and the divine discipline that's going to come their way, and you're going to get splattered in the process. So it's never fun to be married to someone who is undergoing divine discipline and having to go through that suffering by association. Marriage, therefore, is for every member of the human race, believer and unbeliever alike. Third divine institution is family. Fourth divine institution, the authority in the marriage is the husband. The authority in family is the parents. Fourth divine institution is human government. This is established in the Noahic covenant. Human government. And God delegates judicial authority to man at that point, specifically in the realm of capital punishment. And that has never been abrogated. 
the command to take man's life, to take the life of a murderer, will only end when you go outside and no longer see a rainbow. Because the rainbow is the sign of the Noahic covenant. And as long as that covenant is in effect, it will be signified by a rainbow in the heavens. And when that rainbow no longer exists, that covenant is no longer in force. But that covenant is still in force. It's an unconditional covenant that will last throughout all of human history and even into the millennium. Point number five, the fifth, is individual nations. National identity, national distinction, and that's established at the Tower of Babel. Between the flood and the Tower of Babel, you still had a homogenous society They still spoke the same language. They were one ethnic group. But once God diversified the languages at the Tower of Babel, then the gene pool began to diversify. Ethnic groups developed, linguistic groups developed, and nations developed. In order to prevent man from going the path of internationalism and trying to establish his own kingdom in opposition to God. These are the five divine institutions. You know, we're concerned here with, with marriage. Now notice, I, on the first three here, I identified the ultimate authority. Now there is, this takes us down to point number four. Marriage was originally designed by God as a partnership between two people. Now, there are all kinds of partnerships. Some partnerships involve a 50-50 relationship and each person has identical say. That's not how I'm using the term partnership. That's not what the Bible means. Marriage was originally designed by God as a partnership between the two people for the fulfillment of God's plan for the human race in the perfect environment of the Garden of Eden. This partnership was designed with an authority structure and role distinctions which were determined by the inherent qualities God created into the male soul and the female soul. They are about 90% similar, but it's those 10% differences that make a distinction. The male is designed to be the, the authority and the initiator, and the female soul is designed to be the responder uh, to the man and his assistant. And that's the word that's translated in the King James, helpmate, really means an assistant. This is why I tell and counsel young women, I can't even spell tonight, when I counsel young women... And they're getting ready to marry some guy and say, remember, God's plan for your life is to assist him in God's direction for his life, whatever that per plan and purpose is. Are you willing to make that the second highest priority in your life? Remember, the highest is doctrine. The second highest is that you want to go where that guy's going and you want to help him to get there. And that should open the eyes for quite a few young ladies. They may not want to go where that guy is going and or help him get there. There is an inherent authority structure. Why? Even in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is absolute and total equality between the three members of the Trinity. They are one in essence, but they are distinct in personality and they have distinct roles. The Son is the Son from all eternity. The Father is the Father from all eternity. The Holy Spirit's the Holy Spirit from all eternity and they have distinct roles and responsibilities. But that does not mean that one is less equal than another. They are equal but subordinate. 
And so, lack of equality or equality is not a contradiction in term with subordination. This has been the typical stance of feminism in the modern era, is that that uh, if you have role distinctions, then there's not equality. Now, the man was initially created to rule over creation as God's designated representative on the planet. He was God's vice-regent or viceroy. But God never intended the man to function alone. So he created the woman to be his helper, his assistant. The image that's presented in Genesis chapter 2 is that they both have a common goal. The central responsibility is upon the shoulders of the male, and she is to help him get there. And I want to stress again that this authority structure within the marriage is present in perfect environment. Think about that. Authority is not something that God instituted after the fall because of the effects of evil on the human race. Authority structure in marriage, and it, because authority is inherent in the roles of the Godhead for all eternity, it is not something that God designed to deal with a sin problem. It is necessary in order to achieve a goal and to fulfill any plan. So the authority structure within the marriage is present in perfect environment. Now, I know that there's probably some women who would say, well, then it wasn't very perfect, but that's blasphemy. It is perfect environment. Now, this is, um, leads to point number five, that the fall of man in the garden involves at its very core a rejection. Authority is present in the marriage before the fall. It's inherent within creation because man... There's not only authority relation in the marriage between the man and the woman. Remember, her name is Isha. She's not named Eve until after the fall. But there is also an authority relationship between God and man in terms of their relationship. And man is under God and over the creation as God's representative, and He's given specific responsibilities. And when they fail to fulfill those responsibilities at the test point, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were, in effect, rejecting God's authority and saying, God, you can't tell me what to do. I have to have empirical data so that I can decide what is really best for me. I'm not going to take your word at face value. So what happens is... A, the woman acted independent of and in an insubordinate manner to her husband's authority as the head of the family. She does an end run against, uh, around Adam, deals directly with the serpent, and she violates God's mandate. So she acts, first of all, independently of her husband's authority and in an insubordinate manner to his authority, and she disobeys God. Secondly, in her act of independence... She is insubordinate to God's authority. 
She is rejecting God's plan that the man is the head and he makes the decisions and she goes outside and she violates God's mandate and she eats of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. C. The woman then, in another act of insubordination, entices the man to join her in her rebellion. Now you have role reversal. She's going to lead him. And she leads him into sin. That's very interesting to hypothesize what would have had him, had what would have happened if Adam had not sinned, because his sin was the determining factor for the race, not her sin. He's the head of the race, but we don't have time to speculate there. D, the man then succumbs to this role reversal scenario. He allows her to put herself in a leadership position. He puts himself in the responder position and he submits to her leadership and eats the fruit. E. The issue in the fruit was not inherent evil in the fruit. It wasn't poisonous. That's not the issue. The issue underlying the prohibition is are you going to obey God or not? The issue is authority orientation to God. Failure to obey God introduced rebellion into the human race, which is the antithesis of authority orientation, and puts rebellion at the very core of human experience and introduced chaos into every realm of creation, including marriage. Every realm of creation, including marriage and human relationships is now chaotic. Okay, that was point number five. The fall at its core is a rejection of authority orientation. Point number six. The first consequence of the fall was spiritual death, which is defined as separation from God and the inability to relate to God. That's the first and foremost consequence. Everything else flows from that. Everything else flows from spiritual death. Point number seven. The second arena of consequences destroyed the perfect environment of the earth. The oracle, God comes to man. Man runs and hides and tries to cover himself up in his nakedness. And God seeks out Adam and the woman. And then once he hears from their lips what they have done, God pronounces a curse. He announces what the the negative consequences for sin are. Now that you have done this, this is how your decision affects every individual, every person involved, every creature involved in the fall. He announces an oracle against the serpent which cursed the serpent physically and changed his physical dynamics so that instead of walking, it moves on its guts. God announced that there would now be pain for the woman in childbearing. Whatever the physical dynamics were for childbearing prior to the fall, it changes. Her biological structure changes, just as the biological structure of many animals change from herbivores to to, um, carnivores. And God announces a curse on the marriage relationship between the man and the woman. 
folks, what we have starting in Genesis chapter 3. I want you to look at this. In Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14, is God's announcement of judgment on sin. The context of Genesis 3, 14 through 16, or through 19, is the delineation of the consequences of sin in human experience. Always remember that whatever we say about what goes on in these verses, God's talking about negative consequences here. He's not talking about good things that are going to happen. This is sin and judgment. He announces, look at the specifically in marriage, the second half of verse 16. Let me read the context. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet... It's really a con- it's a contrast because he changes his- all it's doing in contrast is it's changing the subject, the focus. Your desire, your desire to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now there's several things we need to note here under point number seven, which is the second arena of consequences. Under point number seven, we have a. The context here is a curse. Though some have taken the meaning of desire here to refer to a physical sexual desire, that the woman will have a desire for her husband, a positive desire, and she'll want her husband, that does not fit the context. That doesn't mean it's not true. It's not what God's talking about in Genesis 3.16. The context is delineating the negative consequences on the participants in the fall. Though some ladies might think differently, the possession of a physical, sexual desire for the man you love is not a punishment or a curse. B. The curse here is written in the form of Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry mirrors or rhymes ideas, not words. So you'll have two stanzas. One stanza will be somewhat synonymous to the previous stanza. Now the second stanza states, And he, the husband, the man, shall rule over you. And that term for rule is the idea of despotic tyranny, control. It is not a positive word. Well, if the second idea in the standard relates to, uh, in the stanza, relates to authority, then the first stanza, the concept of desire must fit synonymously with that concept of rule. So it's not talking about sexual desire because that's not what's mirrored in the second phrase. What this is saying, though, when it uses the word mashal to describe the man's desire to rule... It's not that the worst case scenario is going to be true in every man all the time. What this is saying is left unchecked by either establishment training or good manners, the tendency in the male sin nature will be towards a despotic authoritarianism in the home. Not that every man will become some totalitarian dictator in the home, but that this will be the general characteristic of man at his worst. 
Sexual desire is not an issue, it's not present in the idea, and so it has nothing to do with the context. Point number C. So, in establishing the meaning of this, we've seen first of all that the context is a curse. We're talking about a negative consequence here, and a woman having a sexual desire for her husband is not a negative idea. Secondly, the curse is written in the form of Hebrew poetry, and the, the parallelism here is of power and domination. And then third, the Hebrew word here that is translated desire is the Hebrew word teshuka. It looks like this in the Hebrew. T-E-S-H-U-Q-A-H. Teshuka. It's only used three times in the Scriptures. One time in Song of Solomon is in the marriage context. It relates to the husband and it is showing what happens in a reversal after there is true love and doctrine applied in the marriage. But always remember something as a principle of hermeneutics. A word like Teshuka that's used in the Song of Solomon, which is written in roughly 950 B.C., is going to very possibly have different nuances and meanings than a word that is used in a document written in approximately 1400 B.C. and is used twice in that context of Genesis 3, 16 and Genesis 4, 7. Moses uses this word twice in very close contexts. Now, we all know that the English word charity that was used for love in the King James Version just a mere 400 years ago has a completely different meaning today than it did 400 years ago. That's what I mean. You have to, the principle of interpretation, you always look to how, how a word was used by the same author in that same time period, especially when it relates to the Old Testament. So, Teshuka, as it's used in Genesis 7, God is speaking and is warning Cain, and, it says, and He says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. That's that word, Teshuka. It's a desire to control. Sin is waiting to dominate you. Sin is crouching at the door. Now, a note here. This is what happens. This is the portrayal of the tendency and the consequences of sin on mankind left unchecked. The New Testament mandates to the man to love his wife as Christ loved the church, which is, as we have seen, sacrificial. It's the attitude of a servant. It's putting her interests ahead of his own. This is the antithesis of ruling over the woman as expressed in the curse. Consequently, the woman's mandate to submit to her husband in Ephesians chapter 5 is the opposite of the curse. The point is that under the power of the filling of the Holy Spirit, the regenerated believer living out the mandates for the Christian institution of marriage is able to overcome and reverse the devastating consequences of sin on human relationships. And what makes this possible is his ability to apply the royal law of impersonal love. The curse says this is the tendency of the sin nature left unchecked. The hope that we have in the New Testament is that because of the filling of the Holy Spirit and because of doctrine in our soul, you can reverse this and the mandates that are directed to the man and the woman are the direct antithesis of what God says is going to be the natural tendency 
of the sin nature in Genesis 3, 16. Al Ross, in his commentary on Genesis called Creation and Blessing, comments on it this way. Al was the chairman of the Hebrew department at Dallas Seminary when I was there, has a doctorate from Dallas Seminary as well as a Ph.D. from Cambridge in Hebrew and Semitic languages. I don't know, but one other person in evangelical circles who's more qualified to speak about the Hebrew than Al Ross. The Hebrew word desire, teshuka, has some of the same uses the English word has. In this passage, it is commonly explained to mean that the woman would be drawn to her husband, probably so explained on the basis of the usage in Song of Solomon. But the word also occurs in this context of Genesis with quite another meaning. And then after discussing the details of the lexicography and everything else, he concludes by saying, the significant point about this verse is that it is part of the punishment oracle for sin. To attempt to make it teach the submission of the woman to her husband and the loving leadership of the husband to his wife completely misses the point. Those are qualities taught in the New Testament as part of the work of the Holy Spirit. This verse is part of the oracle for sin. How would this oracle then apply in successive generations? It may be argued that the male domination in the history of the human race is a perpetual reminder of the fall, just as is the serpents crawling on the ground. But if Eve is an archetype, that is, if she represents every woman as Adam represents every man, then the story portrays a characteristic of human nature. The woman at her worst would be a nemesis to the man, and the man at his worst would dominate the woman. The Christian exposition of this passage will necessarily carry the ideas to the New Testament teachings on the same theme. For believers in Jesus Christ, life in the Spirit removes the sting of the curse so that a much more harmonious and loving relationship is envisioned than that which is declared to be a result of the evil in the human race. Now, when I've taught this in the past, usually there's a few people who haven't heard it this way. There's always folks who've been taught that this is sexual desire. And men tend to like it that way because they want to have the delusion that their woman is always going to have the hots for them. Well, that may be true, but that's not what this passage is talking about. If we want to go into the sexual implications of the Scripture, then we would go to the Song of Solomon. But this isn't the Song of Solomon. This is the curse on sin, so we have to remember the context. And the context is saying that sin and judgment affect every category of human relationships. Now, some women reject this because they don't have a personal tendency this way. They tend to be rather uh, uh, submissive in their own personality. They, They go along. They understand authority dynamics. And they just don't have a tendency to want to dominate. They don't have a tendency to be a shrew or to be try to uh, control the husband. So they want to say, well, this isn't true. The problem with that is you're operating like a charismatic. Why, why do I say that? Because a charismatic interprets the Scripture on the basis of his experience. And I find that most men and women want to evaluate this passage on the basis of their experience and not evaluate their experience on the basis of what the Scripture says. And what the Scripture says is that these are trends or tendencies and they will be displayed to one degree or another, not the same degree in every member of the human race. Furthermore, if you have brought up in a home that's taught you good manners and courtesy towards others, where establishment principles have been taught, and where you have learned basics of doctrine, and if you've grown any in your spiritual experience and spiritual maturity before you're married, 
then this should not ever be part of your experience. But all this is saying is that this is a spiritual reality that if you allow the sin nature free reign in your life as a male or a female, then you will sooner or later go in one of these uh, directions. But the hope that we have is that as believers, there is a reversal of this in the spiritual life of the church age and in the mandates that God gives for the Christian institution of marriage, which is much, has a much higher level of responsibility and accountability than just the standard uh, establishment institution of marriage. Well, next week, that wraps up our study on impersonal love and unconditional love, and we'll go on to conclude the next three or four verses next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to study these things and to see how this principle, this unique mandate of the royal law applies especially in our own marriages because so often at times it's those who are close to us where we have the difficulty of really using impersonal love. And yet that is what is necessary if we are going to undergird the romantic love of our marriage in such a way that it has permanent endurance. Father, we pray that You would help us to understand these things, see how they apply to our lives, and remember them in the coming week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.